me pray. Does anybody else want to pray for us? I don't think the guy prays for anything. Anybody else want to pray? I'll pray. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. Father God, we're grateful for um, the time that we can think about you, think about um, who you are and what, what does that mean for life. Why is it so important that we would know you more uh, and how we could uh, use that in just sharing our faith with other people and use it with our families and interactions and how we, um, our knowledge of you should change us. Let that be the case today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, hopefully you guys you know, have done the reading at some point now. I've given you plenty of weeks to read this chapter, to give a chapter we're on. So, um, as we get started, uh, we're going to talk about God's faithfulness or truthfulness today. Um, and we're going to talk about God's goodness as well. So, anybody know Grudem's definition of God's truthfulness or faithfulness, the one that he gave? Anybody know what off the top of their head? Anybody got it in front of them? I got it in front of you. Got, you got it in front of you? Go yeah. for it. God's truthfulness means that he is the true God, and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. Great, okay. So God's truthfulness means that he is the true God, that all his knowledge, all his knowledge, everything he knows, and his words, everything he says, are both true and the final standard of truth. Both of those statements, those statements are important, and we're going to look at those. Um... So let's start off with the idea that God's truthful means that he is the true God. All right? the, the Bible says uh, that God, the God of the Bible is the only true God. Now, how else would we know that, incidentally? <clears throat> Through other, uh, what other ways would you know whether you're the true God or not? I mean, is it possible any other way? Is, is that kind of with Romans when he says, like, they've, like, when he talks about, like, they've denied the truth? Well, yeah, Romans 1, you know there's God. Yeah. Right? There's general sin. revelation sense, right? Yeah, I, general I revelation. Death, revelation. Huh? death is a way to know. <laughs> that's another way to know. <laughs> death. That's right. That's right. But I mean, apart from special revelation, we're just all in an argument, right? We've got yeah. general revelation, which is, you know, nature, and then special revelation, which is the Word of God. And you get into these arguments about how do we know if we have the true God? Because the Bible says we do. Oh, well, how do we know the Bible's true? Because it says it is. Right? And then you get into these kinds of discussions. Jesus came and rose from the dead. That's fairly convincing. You know, so you look at, you start looking at the various evidences, but at the end of the day, you, you either believe the witness of Scripture or you don't. And I don't have time to get into all the apologetics of that, but um, the God of the Bible is the only true God. Look at, just, just, I, um, I'm going to look at one place where it says that. Look at John 17. Rather than spending time looking at all the other, other scriptures, just look at John 17. And you guys are familiar with this. I, in two weeks, not this Sunday, but the Sunday after, I'm going to be teaching through at least Luke's version of what we typically call the Lord's Prayer. Right? It really shouldn't be called the Lord's Prayer. For It's really the disciples' prayer because... Basically, it's the Lord teaching the disciples how they should pray, right? It isn't really how he prays. Um, and he teaches them, this is how you should pray. Um, he prays much differently than that. He never says, our Father, for example, ever. He says, my Father. 
um, he just addresses him personally. And, and there, there are various reasons why that is, and we, we're not going to get into today. But here's really the Lord's Prayer, is John 17. This is where Jesus actually prays. Not where he teaches the disciples how to pray, but where, where he does it. Uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Now, what's the hour he's talking about? Yeah, the time of his death, right? All right. The time that he was sent for. The hours come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. In other words, you, you lift, exalt me, you know, give me praise and honor in that sense, that, so that I might do the same for you. He goes on, since you have given him authority over all flesh, in other words, the son has been given authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Right? He, he has authority over all flesh to give eternal life to who? So Jesus has authority over all flesh. All humanity, right? Mm-hmm. And he gets to give eternal life to who? Those the Father has given to him. Those the Father has given to him, right? And this is eternal life. Do so you know what eternal life is? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So there's a pretty exclusive claim here, isn't there? The only true God. Um, that means there aren't other possible gods. Other gods that are being claimed are Jesus is falsifying them, isn't he? When you say that you're the only true God, what are you saying about all the other claims of God? Okay, I know we have a problem in our culture with negating things. We love to affirm things and, and just despise negation. Um, I've found that in most of the discussions I have. People are super happy with me as long as I keep affirming. The moment I negate, in other words, the moment I say that the opposite is untrue, then people get mad. The only true God. This is the only true God. People go, that's right. That means the other gods are false. Mm. Right, you know? Well, that's what it means. right? You can't say the <coughs> affirmation and not say the negation. And people struggle with that, don't they? You guys find that? Um, and Jesus is making both an affirmation... And by making that affirmation, he's also negating something, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He's denying something. So you, 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 you affirm something and you deny something. Most of our doctrinal statements today only have affirmations. You guys ever notice that? If you go back to the original doctrinal statements that are made by the early church, they have affirmations and what? And denials. And denials. They deny things as well. These things are true and these things are not true. Um, but our culture doesn't like that kind of stuff. And Jesus makes a very radical truth claim. I'm the only true God. Um, the Father's the only true God. Yet I hear people continuously making the claim that there could be other true gods. Right? Is that not true? How, how, does, this, how does this get, um, this idea get denied? Even in evangelical circles. Even in you know, Christian circles. How does this idea get denied? This claim that Jesus is the only one who can give salvation. He says it right here. I'm the one who gives it. You're the only true God. How does this get denied? If you're a good person, kind of thing. Okay, well, anybody who's a good person goes to heaven, right? There are many paths. really need Jesus. There are many paths up the mountain. They all reach the same peak. Many paths lead to the same place, right? Hell. 
<laughs> the, um, nobody, nobody concludes that though. <laughs> no, no, notice that nobody ever concludes that he passed Lee Dell. All right, what, 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 how else does it get denied? You know, if people have sincere beliefs about their religion, right? They don't go down the mini path statement directly. They'll just say, as long as you're sincere about your beliefs, and that's all. If that's all you know. As long as you're sincere, you're okay. Roman Catholics just take that and say they're saved through Christ. As long as they're sincere, their belief. And well, that's uh, that's inclusivism. That's since Vatican II. Yeah. Prior to Vatican II, they didn't say that. But that is. But since Vatican II, they yeah, inclusivism. Yeah. So if you're you're not you're still saved through Jesus. Okay, you guys understand the, the distinction between inclusivism and pluralism. Okay, there's exclusivism. Exclusivism is what? Anybody tell me what that is? Only one way. Okay, Jesus alone saves, right? He's it. That which means you have to know him. You have to have heard of him, right? You 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 guys follow me on that? Someone, it's the Romans ten. How you know anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved? How can they call in the one whom they not believe, and how can they believe in the one that they've not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them, and how will they preach unless someone is sent? Go down to verse 17, right, where he says, what? Hearing, you know, what? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, right? So you need to hear the gospel to be saved, and so that's exclusivism. So missionaries are generally exclusivists. Otherwise, they don't risk their family and their life and everything else to go tell the gospel, take the gospel to a people group that doesn't need it, actually. You guys follow me on that? That exclusivism. That we're, our church is exclusivist in that sense. Then there's pluralism. What's pluralism? Many paths. Many gods. All Many the paths ways. save. All the gods save. Don't need Jesus. Okay? Everybody's eating the same elephant. It's, it's an awesome <laughs> thing pluralists pull on you, essentially, when they get in the argument about the elephant. You guys ever heard it? You got all these blind men, a blind Hindu guy, a blind Christian guy, a blind Muslim guy. You guys ever heard that? They've all got blindfolds on, but they've got blindfolds on. They're not really blind. They have blindfolds on, and they're all, you know, they're all touching this elephant. One's got the trunk, and one's got the leg, and one's got the tail, and one's got the underbelly or whatever. And they're all giving different descriptions of it. But if they took their blindfolds off, they'd see that they have the same elephant. See, that's what's happening. Right, we're all giving descriptions, different descriptions, the same, and so this is the argument they use. Of course, the problem with that is, who's the only person who's not blindfolded? The enlightened, the, the enlightened pluralist is yeah. the only one who actually sees the whole elephant right. because he's smarter than all of the other, um, you know, re- religious leaders. And that's not, in other words, they're making a claim to, that everybody else is prideful and they're humble, but actually they're they're making the claim that they're the smartest of them all. So that's not quite a humble statement, but the. Um, <coughs> So you get into those kinds of debates. So there's pluralists, okay? Now what about inclusivists? What's an inclusivist then? Because Joel's sort of pointing toward inclusivism. C.S. Lewis was an inclusivist. You guys know who C.S. Lewis is? All right? What, what's an inclusivist? In Christ, all are included. All the paths lead to Christ eventually. Okay, you're only saved by Jesus, but you can get there through other religions. That's inclusivism. You could be a Muslim and 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 um, as long as you're sincere Muslim, you're still saved. 
not quite pluralism because you're still only saved by Jesus. But basically, Jesus overlooks the fact that you didn't believe in him. You guys follow that? Okay. That's the current position of the Catholic Church as of Vatican II. Um, that wasn't their position prior to Vatican II. Which is what year? Um, 1960s. 60s. Yeah, 1960s. Oh, they're so, dropping acid. What's that? I was ju- I was That's also when they went to away from Latin, Latin-only liturgy. All right. Um, so the God of the Bible is the only true God is a very exclusive <coughs> kind of truth claim that Jesus makes. All right. Now, God's knowledge and words are true. God's knowledge and words are true is one of the things Grudem says, right? Mm-hmm. Everything he knows is true, right? Not only everything he knows, but everything he says is true. And that what he says is the final standard of truth. So, um, can somebody read Deuteronomy 32.4? You got, got Spencer? Somebody else want to read Job 37.6? What's that? You got it, Matt? Okay. The Rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Matt? 37.6. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour is mighty downpour. Yeah. Um, But here's the thing. All, All that God knows is true. And everything he says is true. It's all the final standard of truth. What's the implication of that? Jesus makes the comment in John 17, 17, you get it with it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Right? Um, what's, what are the, what's the implications about that? What, what are the implications about the fact that everything God knows and says? If everything he knows is true, that doesn't necessarily... I mean, that just tells everything he knows is true, right? Okay? But then if we add to that, everything he says is true, what, means, what's the implication for us? It means he can't uh, be in error and he cannot lie. Yeah. So he can't be in error and he can't lie. So, and, and where do we find everything he says? In the Bible, right? Everything he said, what he wants to say to us, he says in the Word. Okay? That's, that's what we're told. This is... God's speech to us, right? If you guys weren't here during the Doctrine of Scripture stuff, I don't know, do you have it on your your box, your mm-hmm. theology group you have, Jay? During the Doctrine of Scripture stuff um, that I did, we, we covered that already, but everything that God says is, you know, to us is contained in His Word. Um, and we, we have that, and it's all true. Right? Nothing in it's false. That means everything He asserts to be true is true. Um, you guys follow that? All right. Um, and it's the final st- final standard of truth. What are the implications of this, that statement? It's the final standard of truth. Doesn't change. Okay, it doesn't change. And what else? Everything else that goes against it is false. Anything anything opposed to it is false, right? It's consistent with itself. Yeah, consistent with itself. No higher authority for truth. No higher authority. What about my experience? No shaky at best. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I know the Bible says that, but God was, I was praying, and God was telling me 
that this is what I ought to do. Joseph Smith had that problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you guys follow, follow, that comes up a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> without getting into HIPAA violations, I mean, basically, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, counseled a, a person and their spouse left and moved out for like six months and they reconciled or something like that, but the person was just convinced, oh, God told me I needed to move out yeah. for the good of this marriage. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, I know. I always get this one. That. I always get this one. Here, here it is. I know that Jesus says we're not supposed to divorce, and the Bible says God hates divorce. But God, I, I have a relationship with the Lord, and I've been praying about this, and, and God doesn't want me to be unhappy. <laughs> you can do that all day, You guys ever heard that one? Maybe he doesn't, so quit sinning towards your spouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I agree God doesn't want you to be unhappy. Right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you, you guys... You guys follow me on that? People use it all the time. God doesn't want... It's, it's there. What are they exalting? Themselves. 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 Experience. Yeah. When, when you hear Paul um, make a statement like um, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, I want to push into these because these have implications on everything else. You get, you get, he makes a statement like, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1... When he says things like, um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, right? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, if you keep going down to verse 11, for example, and not, because it just goes on and on, in him we have also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. How many things does he work? All things according to the counsel of his will. Now, I, I actually read that passage. I just read Ephesians 1 at Bakersfield Christian High School Chapel. I read that passage. Chapel, BCHS. And they had to have a faculty meeting, an administration meeting, because the faculty objected to my sermon and I didn't actually say anything I just read that passage mm. that's all I did I just wanted to make a point so I stood up and I read the passage very clearly and then I prayed and that was it and I had to have a faculty meeting administrative meeting and they told me that I couldn't bring my theological perspective um, to the chapel anymore I needed to just come and and preach in line with their doctrinal statement so now here's a question <laughs> So we can't read the word. Yeah, yeah. We don't read the word around here. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think about that? What 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 are they objecting to? Truth. They're just objecting to the word. And why are they objecting to me reading that particular passage? I didn't skip around, by the way. I just read it from verse one all the way through. The predestined part, yes. Because it says predestined, chose. Works all things according all things according to the counsel of His will. Good thing you didn't read Romans nine. Uh, well, yeah, I didn't. I was tempted to read it the next week when they had, when I came back. Um, but the uh, I I just continued. Um, I came in a few times and just read Acts four, read Ephesians one, etc. And, and they met it up. <laughs> was there a, the uh, <laughs> what's that? Were all these responses? Correct, or was it 
through email. Oh, no, no. They had a whole <clears throat> staff meeting. And you were at the staff meeting? No, no, no. They called, the president of the school called me and said, staff met. We're very concerned that you took a very particular theological perspective. I said, yeah, Paul's. <laughs> yeah, that's all I did. All I did was read what he said. <laughs> and, it, well, you know, why did you read that particular passage? Because it's in the Bible. Right? Like, I mean, what, what's wrong with that? Particular? So it was a very interesting conversation. They finally backed down, uh, but it, it took a little while. I took an hour and a half conversation with the president at the time to... Uh, of the, of the school to get them to finally back down. but And the Bible department chair got them to back down because he mm. thought what I did was fine. But it, it was objected to because I took a theological... You guys follow me on that? Um, because people don't like the doctrine of predestination or election. It's not inclusive. Well, yeah, who likes it? I, I mean, yeah. in the sense of... They sit there, I know, but I mean, right at the surface... Everybody just kind of objects right off the surface, right? Don't you? You just kind of go, that's, that's, a, fair. Tough, that's a difficult that's hard one. To swallow. It's hard to swallow. Yeah. But it just says it. So you either, but what's the objection to that? Well, you're either in rebellion or you're under submission. Yeah, yeah I know. Choices, yeah. Right? yeah, but what's, what's, what do people object to? The what? First, first thing people say is it's not fair. It's not fair. It doesn't comport with my experience of what is fair. That's essentially what they're saying. My experience of what is fair and true and right doesn't line up with that scripture, so that scripture must be wrong. I actually had a professor say that in a seminary class. This is where we get to the truthfulness. I was in seminary, um, and one of my professors was a philosophy professor, and it was an apologetics class, and we got to Romans 9. You guys all read Romans 9? Everybody here read Romans 9? Um, Romans 9 is a very clear um, and difficult passage for most people. It's one of those passages most people go, I have a real problem with this, right? Because it's so abundantly clear and so difficult, you know. Because um, Paul's asking the question, what happened to the Jews, right? God makes all these promises. Did he keep them? Or does God fail to keep his promises? Now, this is great because we're coming into that discussion of God's well, truth means he'll always do what he said he will do, Right? And he always keeps his word. It means he's faithful. Look at Romans 9 really quickly. Because we're moving there. Because both of these things play off each other. If you're familiar with Romans, Romans 1 through 8, what does Paul do, basically, in all these chapters? He's laying out the gospel. <clears throat> he's laying out the gospel. And in chapter 8, he gets to the height of laying out the gospel. And what does he say in chapter 8? He basically goes on to all these promises we have, right? Are you guys familiar with Romans 8? Just loaded with God's promises to us. It's just an amazing chapter. It's like this exalted picture of how much God loves us and how he will never let us go and how he's for us in Christ. And you guys are, right? He's working all things for our good, etc., etc. So he comes off all these great promises and then Paul has a problem, right? Or he assumes his audience has a problem. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, why is he upset? He just came, because that ought to stop you dead in your tracks. When you come off of the exalted prose that, is, that Paul is following in Romans 8, where he's like, there's nothing that will separate us from the love of God in Christ, right? And, and God's working all things for our good, etc. And then all of a sudden he says, I have unceasing anguish and sorrow in my heart. What? <laughs> right? So then he goes on and says, Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. 
my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now those are the Jews, right? They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what's the problem that, that Paul's run into here? He's just said that God keeps his promises and that nobody can take you away from God and God won't lose you, but yet the Israelites are not in Christ. Yeah. How could this be? God made all these promises to them in the Old Testament. Doesn't he? Right? There's the adoption and the patriarchs and theirs is the, you guys follow this? The covenants. And even from their own line is the Christ. So if all these promises in Romans 8 are true, that God will never bail on us, what happened to them? You guys follow that? Mm -hmm. They're not in Christ. Did God bail on them? And if God bailed on them, why should I believe anything he says in Romans, Paul says in Romans 8, about God not bailing on me? Great question. You guys follow that? Verse 5, uh, verse 6. Now he answers that. It is not as though the word of God has failed. What, what, what's he saying there? When he says the word, what's that? God's faithful. God's faithful. He hasn't failed to keep his promise. So there's, there's got to be another reason. If he hasn't failed to keep his promise, he made all these promises to the Jews, and he hasn't failed to keep his promise, then there has to be a, another reason why the Jews aren't being saved. You guys follow that? Not all the Jews, because Paul's a Jew himself, but the mass you know, group of the Jews aren't being saved. So if you're asking the question, God keeps his promises, right? He promised the Jews they'd be saved. They're not being saved. But it's not because God doesn't keep his promise, because he does. So there must be another answer. You guys follow that? Okay, so what is it? Paul's answer? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Even though you're genetically, ethnically Jewish, that doesn't mean you belong to Israel. Then he goes on and says, which is a big problem for some theological systems today, incidentally. And not all are children of Abraham, because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So, what is, what is Paul saying now? God chose a specific path for whom he was going to save. He tells what he's saying in the next verse. Yeah, he does. This means... Yeah. Thank you. That's what I was always saying. might point out. <laughs> this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. Now, I want you, I want you to stop and ask questions. So you're, you're listening to this, and you're trying to answer the question, if God made all these promises to the Jews, and God never feels, fails to keep his promises, then how come all the Jews aren't being saved? You're trying to answer that question, and what's the answer Paul gives you? Where, where does yeah, what falls what falls down? What's that? It's not the bloodline. It's the it's those who have faith in the promises God made. It's yeah, the children of the promise. What he gives is it's never been about your ethnicity, doesn't he? Right. Mm-hmm. It's never been about your ethnicity. All who all not all who belong to Israel are Israel. Who's really Israel here in this passage? Those who believe in the promises. Yeah, not you're not even a, a child of Abraham just because you're a physical offspring. <clears throat> You can call yourself that, but that doesn't mean you are. Who are the children of Abraham? Those who are children of the 
promise. Jesus has that argument with the Jews in John. He does. Yeah, Eight, you're not children of father. Abraham, you're children of your father, the devil. Mm-hmm. Which is never complimentary, and they want to kill him. Mm-hmm. But anyway, <laughs> okay, so what does he go on in verse 9? For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also, and Sarah, Isaac already had a I mean, sorry, Abraham already had a son, and what was his name? Before Isaac. Ishmael. Ishmael. But Ishmael wasn't a child of the promise, even though he was a child of Abraham. Who was? Isaac. Why? Because God said so. That's it. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived, now that's the wife of Isaac. Rebekah is the wife of Isaac. Had, con- had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So, so notice he states one man, our forefather Isaac. In other words, what's he wanting to stress? These, the children that she conceived, they both have the same dad. Okay, The same dad and the same mom. And Isaac, that, their dad, is a child of the promise. Okay, so he's just he's want to make abundantly clear these children don't have different dads or different moms. They're the same dad, same mom, right? And they're twins. A ch- child of the promise, though they were not yet born. Now another statement: they hadn't even been born, and had done not, done nothing either good or bad, right? So same mom, same dad, not born, never did anything good or bad. You guys follow the qualifications Paul's giving about them? In order that God's purpose of election might continue or stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, it's usually thinking not because of works, but because of what? What do you think you normally, when I say not because of works, you say because of Faith. faith. But that's not what this text says here, right? Because he's not dealing with justification by faith alone here. He's dealing with election. And what he's saying about election is the reason one of these two was chosen, one of these two twins was chosen and not the other, was not because of works, but because of him who calls. Right? And he goes on and says, She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, he elected Jacob and not Esau. Before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, not because of anything they would even do in the future, not by works, but because of him who calls. So that his purpose in election would continue. So his purpose in election would continue. Now, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, you read that and you go, dang, right? That doesn't comport with my sense of fairness. Does it? You guys follow me on that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So maybe it must not be true, right? And Paul knows the objection's coming, so you look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? What, when I say it doesn't comport with my sense of fairness, I'm saying that doesn't seem just. Right? And Paul knows you're going to think that. So he asks the question, is there injustice on God's part? And the answer is, by no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Anyways, who will God have mercy on? <laughs> Whoever he wants. And who will he have compassion on? Whomever he wants. Why? Because why? he's God. Right? So then, it does not depend. It depends not on human will. you got to just stop and think about that. It depends not on human will. Wait, right? what's the it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your election. Your election. Depends not on human will, but what? Or exertion, that your works. So that means, does it depend on your choice or your works, but on God, who has mercy? 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Now this doesn't sound very fair, right? Mm. In other words, Pharaoh, I have raised you up. I have created you and raised you up into power for this very purpose. What? That I might show my power in you and that my main name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What, how did God show his power in Pharaoh? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he crushed him, right? I created you so I could crush you in front of the world and show them I'm, the, I'm God. Okay. Um, then he, that doesn't comport with my sense of fairness. Does it yours? So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God. You will say to me then, because here's the question. If he has mercy on whoever he wills, he hardens whomever he wills, and he creates some people, and 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 in Pharaoh's case, specifically to, to trounce him in front of the whole world and show he's powerful, right? In Jacob's case, to show him love, the question becomes, well, then, then why do I have any fault in any of this? If he's God, and he's created everything, and he's elected, and he's made these decisions beforehand, how, how am I responsible for any of it? Right? And Paul anticipates that objection. Look at the next statement. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And Paul's deeply unsatisfying answer, if you're an arrogant human being, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared hand beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And he goes on. So, Paul makes a very staggering sort of argument, all grounded in the fact he's all he's doing is demonstrating what? In this whole passage... What is he demonstrating? God's promises have not failed. God's faithful. He made promises and he's kept his promises. That's what he's demonstrating. I know Romans 8, you hear these exalted promises about God and not bailing on his people. And I know you see that it looks like he made all these promises to these Jews and he bailed on them. But you need to understand something. He never bailed on them. He's always faithful. His word never fails. He's always truthful. You misunderstood the promise. The promise was never given to all the ethnic Jews. The promise was given to the children of the promise. That's who it was given to. It was never given to all ethnic Jews. It was given to the children of the promise. Now there's a whole system of theology out there, guys, that, that actually argues the opposite. Right? And it's not called Arminianism. It's called dispensationalism. Right? Okay. So, I don't have time to get into all of that, but, but that's out there. So, um, God's words about himself and create... So, here's, here's what I want to establish. God's truth means he always will do what he said he'll do. We, we call that faithfulness. He'll always do what he said he'll do. He's faithful to his word every time. Never fails to keep it. Okay, does that make sense? That doesn't mean we always have to like it. We'll never fail to keep it. So he's truthful. Everything he says is the final standard of truth. And whether it comports with your experience of things or not, or your sense of fa- you know, fairness or justice or what's right, okay, 
This is going to be tough when we get into goodness, too, because, you guys, it's going to come up there as well. Um, but he's always faithful to what he says. God's words about himself and creation always correspond to reality. You guys hear that? God's word about himself and creation always correspond to reality. In other words, he doesn't just make statements that don't correspond to reality. They do. Um, so, what are some of the implications of God's truthfulness and slash faithfulness for life and ministry? We can take risks relying on and counting on his promises. We can take risks relying on and counting on his promises. And they're only risks to our feeble minds. Because mm -hmm. if you could look at it from God's perspective, there isn't a risk if we're in his hands. I say that, but I don't act like it. Yeah. We're going to talk to here about like we uh, should encourage us to in the pursuit of knowledge in all areas of natural and social sciences, humanities, and things like that. Um, and so that's kind of what I was thinking. And we can we can pursue knowledge. We can pursue understanding things we don't understand with confidence, knowing that God's not. He's always faithful. He's true to who He is, and we can trust His word. Yep. It kind of goes along with that. Um, that's kind of my. Yep. We can. He He has true knowledge, which means we're people who share this attribute with Him, so we can pursue true knowledge as well. We can actually know things truly. I know that's hard in our age where we don't know anything truthfully because we just everybody has their opinion and nobody actually knows anything and. Your opinion and my opinion are all equally valid and all the bull that we spread around in our culture, which none of us ever live by, incidentally, but we claim whenever it comes to religious truth claims, right? Right, that everybody's opinion is equal and all this kind of junk. Um, and, and of course, if, if my opinion is just as true as yours, well, mine is that you're wrong. So now what do you do with that, right? You guys follow me on that? It's just... Um, it's just, it's a, it's a self-defeating proposition. But it's out there. We can actually know things truly. About God, and about his world. His creation. Um, which, which ought to impress, <clears throat> encourage you to press into whatever your vocation is. You have a vocation. It's a good thing for you to, to learn, to acquire as much knowledge in the field that God's given you as, as you can. To become as... Is understanding about what the field God's put you in as you can. You guys follow me on that? Okay, that's a good thing. Um, uh, all right, we 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 can and should be truthful. How about that? There's an implication. Mm -hmm. God doesn't lie, so it'd probably be good if we don't. Right? Colossians three deals with that and the the issue of you know we we've, we're a new creation, and so we shouldn't lie to one another. What what is the main reasons we generally lie? Protect ourselves. Yeah, to protect ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about the Rahab kind of lie where God commends her for lying, where she's 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 seeking a greater good for someone else, even at a cost to herself. Right? <clears throat> That's you know it's it's potentially going to cost her life when she does what she does for the sake of saving other people. She isn't lying for self benefit. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Um, in that case. But we're talking about the average way we generally lie, which is always for self-benefit. <laughs> <laughs> Were you going to say something, Josh? Say, I was going to like 
we snark either. We lie because we speak, you know. But uh, yeah, that's true. We, uh, often I think we lie because we don't. We don't. We're we're not solid enough in what the truth is. Like we don't even maybe know we're lying. Oh well, yeah. Um, yeah. We're ignorant of, of the things that we shouldn't be ignorant of, and so we just say things. And so that's one way we do, which is. Which is not necessarily intentional, but right. just a, we just don't know the truth. Spout falsehood because we don't care and value the truth. That's right. What What's another way we lie? Just flat out don't tell the truth, right? Here, here's Here's the way I do it. Honey, are you listening to me? Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> no, not really. Right. Okay. <laughs> You guys ha- have ever had that happen, or just me, right? Just me? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm listening to you. No, no. We are recording this, you know. All right, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Okay. And I have to come back and say, no, I, I wasn't listening to you. But first, I'm, my first instinct is to say, yeah, yeah, I'm listening to you, right? It's just a lie. Why? Self-preservation. Self-preservation. <laughs> can, can I come right up to us? Nope, not at all. <laughs> because we want to defend ourselves or justify ourselves or mm-hmm. pretend like we're a better spouse than we actually are. You guys follow me on that? Um, and, and, it, and because, you know, we, we for a long time, we lived under the rule of our dad, the father of lies, Satan, and we we um, we learned a lot from him, right? Even though we've been adopted in a new family, um, we still have some of that that junk remaining around, don't we? Um, you can go on and on, and and if you're a liar by designation, in other words, if that's just what characterizes your life, then what does Jesus say about you in the end in Revelation 21? Where do you end up? Where do all liars go? The lake of fire. The lake of fire, right? That's where all the liars go. That's not a good thing, right? Uh, one of the big things I've told my kids for years is that is that you know if you do something wrong, um, you you you'll get in trouble for that. If you lie to me, you're really going to get in trouble mm-hmm. because fundamentally, um, you know, lying is is a is a fundamental offense to who God is, mm-hmm. right? It's, 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 he's the truth. Even in, uh, in my profession, you can, you can pretty much get away, quote unquote, with just about any kind of bad behavior, as long as you can fess up to it and say, yeah, I screwed up, it was wrong, I'm not going to do it again. But once you lie, you're fired. You can't testify in court, and if you can't testify in court, you're useless. Because it's it's on record that you have lied, in, in in the you know in your professional. Yeah. Yeah, we have the whole American court system. If they can, if they can, you know, find you in perjury as a witness, right? And they yeah. can, they can disqualify you. You know, then all the everything else you say is useless at that point. There's we know there are implications to not telling the truth, right? I'm being a truthful person. Um, all right. And, and here's the last one. We, we can and should, we can and should um, love truth and hate falsehood or error. And you notice I said that? Love truth. Now here comes the negation or the, the denial. We should hate falsehood or error. Um, I was talking to a guy one day in the hospital, um, and he, told, he was telling me, 
But he wasn't sick. I was at the hospital. We were in the cafeteria. He started talking to me. He wasn't one of the guys who was there sick. But he um, started saying, well, you know, I, I really like um, Benny Hinn and, you know, all of, you know, you guys know all the TVN mm-hmm. channel craziness. Um, and uh, I said, well, you know, they believe that you speak your own reality to existence. Said, what do you mean? I said, you know, if you name it and claim it, then it'll be true. If you say it, you can make these things happen. If you believe them enough. He's like, yeah, so? I said, well, that's paganism. That isn't Christianity. That's, that's a completely false religion. Um, and he's like, well, so what? Right? I said, well, so what? He's like, I still love it. I said, well, I hate it. You hate it? How can you say you hate it? Because it's false. And it's destructive. Saying untrue things about God... And it's saying untrue things about reality. And it's harmful to people. And he was sort of thrown that I stated that I hated that doctrine. You guys follow me on that? Because you're allowed to love the truth in our culture again, what you think is true, but you're never supposed to hate what you think is false. I told him, I don't, I don't hate you. I hate what you believe. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and I'd like to see it change, right? Okay? All right. Um, okay. God's goodness. God's goodness. Grudem's definition, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good. Hear that? That God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. So that's how he defines it. It means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. So, so what is good really equal then? Worthy of approval by God, right? That's essentially what he's saying. If it's good, then it's worthy. Of, how do you know something's good? Because it's worthy of approval by God. Um, we know that, as Joel is so fond of saying, God alone is good. When you ask, when Joel asks you, "How are you?" Don't answer "good," because he'll say, "Not only God is good." You're right. He alone is good, right? Because grammatically, you're supposed to say "well." The um, you're not. It's, it's a very high appraisal of yourself to say you're good. Anyway, the um, so. God alone is good. What's that? It's a lot of pressure in one little question. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> What's all the pressure oh. about, Joel? <laughs> exactly. All right. So, Psalm 100, verse 5. Can somebody take that? And who, who wants to take it? Kevin, somebody else take Psalm 106, verse 1. Anyone? Jared, okay. And someone will take Psalm 34, verse 8. You'll read that one? Thanks, Josh. Okay. Who's got 100 verse 5? That would be me. Okay. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Okay. The Lord is good. All right. His steadfast love endures forever, which we'll deal with next week. And his faithfulness to all generations, which we just dealt with. He's faithful. Okay. Who's got 106.1? I've got it. Okay. Praise the Lord. A good thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay, God is good. Again. What, um, Josh, you have 34 8. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Yeah, so taste and see that the Lord is good. You're invited to actually share and experience his goodness there, right? Um, what, what are the implications of this idea that God is good and. Um, and essentially that all that God does, and that he's the final standard of what is good, and all that he does and is, is worthy of approval. So 
Here's the first implication. Whatever God approves is good. Whatever he approves is good. Um, and, and somebody would say, well, why is what God approves good? And the answer is? Because he's got to prove it. Because he approves it. He's the standard. Um, it's where you get into the question, does God do a thing because it's good? Or is a thing good because God does it? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Yes. Yes, and, and really, at the end of the day, in the ultimate sense, God defines what is good by his nature. His being is good, and therefore everything that he says is good is good. Right? He can't do anything that's not good. Right? He never, you know... Alright, I'm not going to get into it too much. Okay. What, here's a second implication. Um, so not, whatever, not just whatever God approves is good, but whatever God does is good. So, again, why is all that God does good? I'm just going to repeat this. Because why? Because he approves it, right? He does it. He's God. You guys get the simple formula here? Right? God says it's good, it's good. God does it, it's good. God approves of it, it's good. Because God's good. Right? And he defines goodness for us. We don't define it for him. And this is very popular in theological circles to say... Well, we decided that's not good, therefore God couldn't do that. Right? But in the Bible it says God did that. Yeah, but I'm talking about, guys, I'm talking about Christian theologians. When the Bible says it's good, well, it couldn't mean that. Okay, so the passage I just read from Romans 9, God approves of the way he elects, right? He approves of it. He's going to do it the way he wants to do it. He's going to approve, he approves the way he has mercy and et cetera, et cetera. And I read that passage, and I was sitting in class in seminary, and this is what I was getting at earlier. Our philosophy professor, my philosophy professor in seminary, says in front of the class, I raised my hand, because he, he's making this argument. I raised my hand, I said, um, doctor, and I'll leave his name blank there. Um, you just stated that, that um, you know, you believe all of these things. So here's a question I have for you as an implication of that. In Romans 9... Paul clearly says that God elects um, based on whatever he wants to do, right? He's not subject to your definition of justice or fairness. He's subject to his definition of it, not yours. What do you do with that chapter? And you know what his answer was? Did he, do you think he said Romans 9 is wrong? No, this is an evangelical seminary, right? Of course, he's not going to deny that Romans 9 is wrong. Here's what he says. I know that it seems that Romans 9 clearly says that. Yeah, okay. He says, but it can't really mean that. Because we know, we know what justice is, and we know that men really have free will, and therefore, while what Romans 9 seems to say is what you're saying it says, it can't really say that. Because of what we know. And I said, do you have an argument to show me that Romans 9 doesn't say what I'm saying it says? No, we haven't figured out an argument to show that Romans 9 doesn't say what you're saying it says. Because it clearly seems to say that. But, <laughs> but, it can't really be saying that. can't really mean that. You guys follow me? Is it possible that your idea of justice is uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, his idea of justice couldn't be wrong. Right? Okay, you guys follow me? You guys see why this becomes a problem. All right, um, because essentially at the end of the day, you're saying, 
God's what 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 God wants to do is going to be defined by good by us, not by Him. Right? Aren't, we're aren't, the we we're the final standard of what's good. What's that? Aren't we somewhat glad that God is not completely just in the sense that we'd all be in hell? Well, He's actually still completely just. Mm-hmm. That's not injustice. True. Yeah. It's just. Are we glad that He's merciful as well? Yeah. There, I guess yeah. that's a good way. To, yeah. 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 We are very glad He's merciful as hell. He's poured out his justice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both That's work. Well. Yeah, yeah, both work. Yeah, yeah, both work. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say, John? That's worse full as hell. If we were given what we deserve. Right. Yeah. So if we were given what all, we deserve, all this, we'd be in trouble. So the presupposition yeah. that the, the guy that has a problems with, with Romans 9 is, he's saying, I, I didn't deserve to not be elected. Right. right. So he's starting with wrong. He's saying I deserve to be elected. We all deserve to be elected, or or that we all deserve. Right. That's yeah. that's an assumption of innocence. It is. So there's the, the problem. But God made me this way. Yeah. Yeah. Why did He make me like this? Yeah. See, Paul Paul knows that that's exactly what he's going to say, right? That's why he asks the question and answers it. Yeah. Adam and Eve tried that method. It didn't work well for them either. If your reading of Romans <laughs> yeah. nine, incidentally. If your readings of Romans 9 don't lead you to the objections that Paul brings up, you're not reading Romans 9 correctly. If you don't get to the objections, well, that doesn't seem just and fair. And, well, why would God make us that way? If you don't get to those objections, then you can't possibly be reading that chapter correctly. Because those are the objections that Paul expects you to come to if you're understanding what he's saying. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Um... That, that's the test, incidentally, as to whether or not you're reading. A lot of Paul's writing is, is, Greek, is a form of Greek rhetoric. And so he writes rhetorically, and when he writes, he gives all of these rhetorical questions to himself. He has this imaginary interlocutor. That means he has somebody who's objecting or asking questions. And he's, he, that guy isn't really there. Paul's anticipating objections or questions that might come up, and then he's answering them. You guys follow me on that? Mm-hmm. If... <clears throat> What, that means that what you read here ought to lead you to the understanding that brings you to the question Paul is asking here. Which then leads Paul's... You guys follow me on that? And so if you're reading this and you don't get to the understanding that leads Paul to this kind of question or objection, then you didn't understand the passage preceding it very well. It's the same thing happens in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. After he talks about grace upon grace upon grace, right? Shall we say then? And what shall we say then? Shall we continue sinning that grace, so that grace may abound? Right. If you don't get to that thing, that like, man, grace is so good. Grace is so good that it basically makes me think that I ought to go on sinning so that I can just so grace can go out more. Right. If you don't get to that understanding of the grace of the gospel, then then you haven't understood Paul's argument up to that point. You guys follow me on that? Now Paul answers that and says, absolutely not, but. Okay, all right. Um, I used that with a Roman Catholic in a debate, by the way, when we got into this issue of grace. A priest, and he told me, well, Paul can't be saying that grace is, you know, that comprehensive because we've got to add, you know, da 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 When in this whole discussion, I said, well, if he's not saying that it's that comprehensive, then what do you do about Romans 6.1? How do you get to that objection? And he didn't really even answer that question, incidentally. Um, whatever God does is good, 
because he approves it. God is the source of all good in the world. Here's the other implication. Because God's good, he's the source of all good in the world. James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? Our Father above, right? Okay, Father Lights. He, every good and perfect gift comes from him. In other words, every, he is the source of all good things in the world. Everything good, God's the source of. Right? That's why we give thanks. Um, God, and that's also, by the way, how you enjoy his goodness. You, part of the way you enjoy God's goodness, or the, perhaps the main way you enjoy God's goodness, is by enjoying God's good gifts and pointing back to him for them. Right? So you have a nice family. You enjoy your wife. You enjoy your children. You, you've, you've got a career that pays your bills. You, you enjoy the fact that God is taking care of you. You've got a nice dog. You enjoy the dog. You, everything that is good in your life, you go back and say, this comes from God. And so I can enjoy this good thing and give thanks to him. Now there's a way to idolatrously enjoy the good thing as well. That's where you swap the creator for the created thing, right? You, you decide to worship the created thing rather than the creator. That's idolatry. But it's not wrong to enjoy the good gift. You know, you're at a place and you're like, this cheeseburger is good, and you should enjoy it. And you should be happy you enjoy it, but you better point back to God and don't commit gluttony. Right? You follow <laughs> me? Okay, you guys get it. All right. Um, God is always working for the good of his people. That's another implication. He's always working for the good of his people. So, whatever God approves is good, whatever God does is good, God is the source of all good that we experience, and God is always working for the good of his people. Romans 8.28 God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's always working for your good. You might not always be able to see how that is. Doesn't mean it'll be happy and comfortable. No, it doesn't. A lot of times that would be painful. But he's always working for your good. And what's your ultimate good in that passage? He says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And what does he go on to say after that? For all those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, or the preeminent one. So what's, what's the good that he's working in your life? To make us more like Christ. To make you more like Jesus. So that Jesus is exalted. Um, that's how he's always working for your good. That is your ultimate good. Does it mean that he's working to, you know, I know my marriage sucks right now, but God is working in this sucky marriage so that this marriage will one day be gloriously good and fun for me to have? Not necessarily. It might suck your whole life. I can't guarantee you your marriage will just become grand. I, I just can't. It's a false guarantee. The Bible never guarantees you that. But right. God is using it for your good. God is using it for your good, so you don't bail on it. And you press in and love your wife as Christ loved the church. And, and you look more which, like Which, by Christ. the way, if you love your wife like Christ loved the church, the church wasn't exactly a great bride to him. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So, okay. Certainly not a faithful bride, mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. We can go on and on. Um, all right. Um, he's always worked for the good of his people. Um, it's true in prayer. And we're going to come to that passage next week in Luke 11. It's true in prayer. What does a father give to his children? Good gifts. Good gifts. Yeah, right? You're a, you, you, you guys were... How many of you are dads in here? A lot, several of us are dads, okay? 
Now, if your kids ask you for a loaf of bread, you're not going to put a snake in their hand, right? Or a scorpion, right? You're going you're gonna to give your kids a loaf of bread. You guys follow me on that? You're going to give good gifts to your kids, and you're evil. That's what Jesus says. You may not like that Jesus says that, but that's true. You're evil. I'm evil. We're all evil. And we still watch out for our kids, don't we? Because we're good dads. How much more, Jesus says, your Heavenly Father? How much more Him? You ask Him, how much more is He going to give you good gifts? You, you guys follow the argument? Yes, sir. Can I add on to that? I was thinking throughout this whole time how, you know, God is the standard of good. And if God is the standard of good, then that means that He really can be the only one who's good. Because we don't live up to His standard. We all right. fall short, right? And then like Romans 12, all have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does you mean good. Romans 3? Yeah, I'm sorry, 312. Uh, no one does good, not no. even one, yeah. right? So God is the only one who does good, not us. And so why are we being transformed into the image of Christ? So that someday we can be good. Well, and, and so that we will do good even now, um, because we can do good now. This is a communicable attribute. Through him, right? Yeah, but the only reason it's anything we do is acceptable and good is because of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, Hebrews 12, also in the context of discipline, when you're being disciplined, it's for your good. Mm -hmm. It's clear. And it, it bears the peaceful fruit of, or yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Right? Uh, it's painful for a little while, but it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So how can we imitate God in his goodness? How can we imitate God in his goodness? We'll, we'll end with this today. Anyone? We have to start by, by studying his word to know what good is. Even. Okay, so we know what good is. So we're studying his word and we know how he defines good, then how do we imitate him in it? Now now that we know what it is. I'm not saying, you know, I'm just coming to the conclusion that you've read the whole Bible, you know what good is, and so you go. Alright, no, what, what do you do with it? How do you imitate him now? What, what, how can we imitate him? We seek to do the things he does. Right. We, we do good. He's good. It's it's really simple. I mean, it's not as I'm not asking you a trick question. He's good, and we are supposed to try to do good as well, right? Okay. Galatians chapter six. Um, you know, this is stated pretty clearly in, in verse one or verse ten. Sorry, he says this. So then, as we have opportunity, okay, let us do good to everyone. Who are you supposed to do good to? Everyone. Everyone, right? And especially to those who are the household of faith. Now, so where are, you, where is your, where are the good works you're supposed to do for people supposed to start? Household of faith. In the yeah, church. with the church. You start there, and then you work out to everyone else. Right? There's preference given to the household of faith in that regard. In other words, if there are people in need in the body of Christ, you serve those needs first, and then you work there to other people in need. You guys follow that? Simple enough. Okay. Um, you do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. Um, also, in 2 Timothy, um, this is stated again about doing good. In verse 17, or verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Right? So we do good. Um, because God is good. All right. 
The other thing we do is we seek God as the ultimate good. Hear that? So we don't just do good ourselves, but we seek God as the ultimate good. Psalm 73. You guys, this is what I want to end with, is Psalm 73. So here we go. Um, you guys familiar with the context of Psalm 73? Mm-hmm. 73, how does, how, how does he start off this psalm? Truly God is good to Israel. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But look what he says. He goes on and says this, and this is, this is a really convicting thing. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Now why did he almost stumble? Even though he knows God's good, why did he almost stumble and slip? He was jealous that the righteous seemed to have blessing. Right, for I was envious yeah, of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why are the wicked being prosperous? Amen. <laughs> Who doesn't want to give a big amen to that, right? <laughs> okay. How does you know exactly? For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're in other words, they're well fed and they're taken care of and they're not dying as young and they're not suffering as much. And he goes on, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They're fools. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths, mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Right? When your tongue struts through the earth, it's just it's this picture that you're just arrogant as all get out walking around, deriding heaven and God and everything else. Right? They they scoff and speak with malice. Uh, oh, sorry, I read that. Verse 10. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So what's his problem here? What's he concluding? It's not worth it. <laughs> yeah, why in the world have I spent so much time trying to be good, like God is good, when I look around and wicked people are prospering? And they're talking smack about God, and they're arrogant, and yet they're getting rich, and they're living long lives, and they're not suffering from the same diseases, and they don't fall into the same oppression. So what is the point? It's all vanity. You guys, you guys hear what he's saying? You can feel that, right? You ever feel that? You ever do the right thing at work, and you see other people doing the wrong thing, and they're getting promoted, and you're not, because you refuse to do what they're doing? Okay, it happens all the time, right? And, and, you're, and, and you're like, you know what? Justice is coming for them. God's going to... God's going to show them. He's going to. They're going to get caught, and then when they get caught, they're going to get down. And then ten years, twenty years later, they're they're the president of the corporation, and they're still not caught, and they're doing really well, and they're a fat cat. And you're going, what in the world? How come not? Because the reality is, they may not see justice this side of eternity, right? Often don't see justice this side of eternity. Let's let's just deal with the reality. The psalm writers do not live in this fantasy world where everything always works out for believers and everything always goes against unbelievers. You guys follow me on that? So he's, he's saying, well, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought 
how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. In other words, whose end does he discern when he goes into the sanctuary of God? The prideful and arrogant. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed, destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish in anger, I was a beast, like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. What, what's he saying here? What's he realized? He got the right perspective. He's seeing the eternal perspective now. Yeah. They're not going to prosper eternally. Yeah. But he will. When I just think about it from the perspective of this world, it's wearisome. I just can't take it. I'm, this, is, this doesn't make any sense. But when I get an eternal perspective, and I look at the holiness of God, then what do I see? I see that he's going he's gonna to deal with them. Justice is coming. And he's going to show grace and mercy to many. You, you guys follow where he comes to there? Mm-hmm. Verse 25. Whom am I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. Right? He just realizes that God is the ultimate good. Right? And regardless of how life works out for him now, he knows what's coming is he gets God. He gets the ultimate good, and he gets to be received in the glory with him. And that's what matters to him. And it's what mattered to Moses, incidentally. God says, if you remember when we read Exodus 33 a couple weeks ago, and God tells him, I'm not going to go with you. Before, just before he says, I'm not, and the people hear this disastrous word, just before God says, I'm not going to go with you, what does he say? I'm going to send an angel before you, and I'm going to conquer all the inhabitants of the land for you, and you're going to go into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, you're going to get everything you ever dreamed of, but I'm not going to be there. And the people heard this disastrous word. You understand what's going on there? They recognize, I get everything we ever want to hear, but if we don't have you, what what difference does any of that make? And that's what the psalmist is saying here. Okay, you get these people might get everything in the world offers, but if they don't have you, what difference does it make? You're 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 what's good. You guys follow that? So we pursue, we do, we do good, and we pursue the one who is good. That's that's how we're like it. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for you and your word. It's truth. And the fact that you have um, made yourself so abundantly clear in your word, the fact that you are truthful, um, you are the truth, and that you're faithful to keep all of your promises, that, that you are good. You have a standard of good, and, and um, you are good to us. Father, we pray that we would trust in your goodness, um, and we would trust in your word. That your goodness and your word would be the final standard of truth for us and, and not our own assessment of things. And that we would be thankful and rejoicing in you that we pursue you because you're good. Know, and know that we could have all the things the world has to offer. If we don't have you, we have nothing. And Father, so give us the desire for you. 
You are strength, the strength of our heart and our portion forever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, gentlemen. <clears throat> Next week we do not meet. So let me say that again. Next week we do not meet.